Today's show is sponsored by JumpCloud. JumpCloud offers a cloud directory platform that gives users a single identity for their email, apps, networks, and even their work devices, whether they're Mac, Windows, or Linux. JumpCloud gives IT admins a single pane of glass to configure and secure those devices, set policies for MFA, full disk encryption, screensaver, and much more. With JumpCloud, remote onboarding and offboarding goes from hours to under five minutes. JumpCloud puts zero trust security within the reach of organizations of any size. JumpCloud reimagines the relationship between the user identity, their work device, and their access to resources. Access is securely granted based on trusted identity, trusted device, and trusted network. So if you're looking for a directory that supports heterogeneous OSs, or you just need SSO, MDM, LDAP, MFA, or all of the above, JumpCloud will make your job easier. Try it out for yourself at jumpcloud.com. That's jumpcloud.com. Cloudcast Media presents from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delb and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome back to the Cloudcast. We are coming to you live from the massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Hope everybody is doing well. We uh, continue to move into March, uh, springtime for many people. Uh, we're starting to see some some changes in the weather, some changes in uh, when the sun comes up and comes down. So um, good to see that happening and uh, sort of the end of the first year of this pandemic, which luckily for good parts of the world, we're beginning to see some rollouts of the vaccine, which is really, really encouraging. Hopefully folks are getting a chance to get that. Hopefully you're taking care of friends and family and, and others. And, uh, you know, hopefully we are getting towards the end of this as opposed to uh, seeing it continue going forward. So with that, um, you know, a couple of things, uh, you know, this is our Sunday perspective show. Uh, we enjoy, you know, having a chance to uh, do something a little bit different than the weekly interviews. Uh, we love, you know, bringing the interviews to you, bringing the technology to you. But Sundays also give us a chance to really kind of look at, you know, some things that have happened both in our industry, looking forward and looking backward. So uh, we enjoy having a chance to do that with you every week. Also, really appreciate everybody who's uh, you know been listening to the Cloudcast Basics and telling their friends about it. We've seen some very very good uptick of that uh, that separate series of of shows, really trying to help us build the community, but also you know help those that are beginning to get into the community start to understand cloud computing from both a technology and business perspective. So this week in Cloud uh, Sunday Perspectives, we're going to look at Cloud Foundry, which was um, still a technology that that is persistent uh, in the market, but you know kind of a, a story of a technology that was you know had a distinct problem it was trying to solve it was really trying to look at creating an open source alternative to uh, an application platform sort of alternative to Heroku but was also trying to you know, re- rethink, replace how enterprise companies built software so very ambitious goal very ambitious um, set of technology trying to do that uh, so we're going to kind of walk through the lessons we learned from Cloud Foundry, um, some things that we've been able to take uh, into the future, some other uh, projects and technologies have learned from that space, and maybe some of the mistakes that were made or you know uh, choices that were made that didn't necessarily pan out. So we're going to dive into sort of lessons learned from Cloud Foundry right after the break. Today's show is sponsored by O'Reilly. O'Reilly is known for its animal books, which have helped tech professionals stay ahead for over 40 years. Today, its online learning platform at O'Reilly.com takes learning tech to the next level. Sure, your teams get access to thousands of books and videos, but there's also interactive learning, which is where you can get hands-on with tech like Kubernetes, Python, Docker, Java, and much more in live dev environments. So they learn by doing, not just reading. 
With live online sessions, your teams learn from the biggest brains in AI, software architecture, cloud, data, programming, and more. They can even prep for tech certification exams with official materials and interactive practice test. And then there's O'Reilly Answers. You just ask the search engine any tech question, and it takes you right to the best answers from O'Reilly's renowned books. It's why 66% of all Fortune 100 companies give their teams O'Reilly Online Learning. Get a demo today at O'Reilly.com. That's O'Reilly.com. And we're back. And as we mentioned in the kickoff, we're going to look at kind of, you know, where Cloud Foundry evolved from, the Cloud Foundry technologies, as well as the companies, the foundations, the ecosystem, a community around that. We're going to look at, um, you know, what it was intended to do, how it evolved over time, and, um, you know, some of the, the lessons that were learned from that. So let's kind of dig into it. Let's uh, start by looking at historically where this got started. So uh, the time frame was sort of early 2011. Um, VMware at the time, uh, we, you know, we've, we've talked about Pat Gelsinger having navigated uh, as the CEO of, of, uh, of VMware for quite a while. He just recently left to go to Intel. But at the time, Paul Moritz had uh, come. He had taken over from, um, uh, from the original founders of VMware, so uh, Diane Green and uh, after EMC had acquired them. So Paul was, was in charge, and Paul brought sort of a background of, uh, you know, of application-centric uh, background from Microsoft. So Paul's sort of legendary, having grown up through the ranks of Microsoft, had been very visible from an application perspective and was leading VMware and was, you know, kind of moving them beyond just their infrastructure roots. And so, uh, you know, sort of early uh, April-ish, March, April-ish 2011, VMware uh, has a press release, uh, actually a press day, sort of an event, and they release and they announce this thing called Cloud Foundry. It was intended to be an open source programmable cloud application platform. So, you know, at the time, the word that we used uh, to describe something like this was PaaS, um, just to put it into some historical context, uh, Heroku, which was probably at the time the most well-known PaaS, uh, was launched in 2007. Uh, the Google App Engine had been launched in 2008. So this wasn't a completely brand new concept. It wasn't a brand new um, idea, but it was very different for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, unlike those uh, those other sort of well-known PaaSs at the time, uh, number one, uh, they were not open source, right? They were kind of proprietary and specific to um, that specific cloud, um, and the you know the code was not something that the developers could get access to. Number two, they were um, you know only only available in the cloud. And keep in mind, if you go back to two thousand seven, two thousand eight, or even two thousand eleven, right? Keep in mind, AWS still hadn't uh, reached a billion dollars in revenue yet. So people were familiar with the cloud. They, you know, from an enterprise perspective or even a mid-market perspective, they weren't really confident yet in using the cloud. And so this idea of we're going to bring something that number one is open source and, you know, open source had sort of, you know, begun to explode on the scene as a viable thing. Obviously from a Linux perspective, it had been around for a long time, but, uh, you know, back in 2010, so a full year before, uh, the OpenStack project, which we talked about on a previous show, had kind of gone uh, and and was exploding and sort of getting a lot of momentum. So, you know, you had this uh, kind of momentum in the enterprise and amongst, you know, different companies that uh, open source was going to be a viable thing, that there were companies and customers that were interested in open source alternatives. Um, there were customers that were interested in 
things that they could um, deploy across any cloud. They didn't necessarily, you know, they were concerned about clouds. They weren't sure how viable they were going to be. And um, they thought, well, maybe we'll want to be able to deploy this in any cloud we want, right? And again, Azure wasn't terribly mature at the time. GCP wasn't terribly mature, but AWS wasn't terribly mature either. So there was a lot of uncertainty about you know, which clouds will we use? And actually back then, you know, IBM was trying to be in the cloud space. HP was trying to be in the cloud space. Others were trying to be in the cloud space as well. So you had, you know, Rackspace and others. So the idea of you're going to be able to kind of control your destiny with the cloud was also very interesting. And the third real pillar that made Cloud Foundry appealing was this idea that it wasn't tied to a certain framework or language, right? So, um, you know, VMware at the time owned Spring, the Spring uh, framework, which, you know, Spring Boot and Spring Cloud and things. But, um, you know, that was sort of the first one that they, they talked about. Um, uh, Heroku originally had been more Ruby-centric. And um, so you had some you had some language restrictions in the other things. This was going to support multiple languages, right? It was going to support Java and Node and Ruby and, and some other things. So, you know, it came out of the gate as a really interesting concept. Um, it was very different at the time because VMware was not by any means known for being in open source. Uh, Spring was in open source, but you know when VMware acquired Spring, people were like, I don't really know what the synergies are there, right? Like VMware is an in- infrastructure company. Why are they buying this, this Java company? I don't see where the two of them necessarily go together. So you had some of that. And then you know just to sort of put the timelines out there, um, you know, 2011, a month later, uh, Red Hat launched the OpenShift uh, PaaS platform. So, you know, you immediately had competition in this space. And by 2012, one of the original sort of CTOs of the project, Derek Collison, who had previously been at Tibco and at Google, uh, along with Mark Lukowski, who was also at Google and kind of some of the, the original founders of it, Derek had left and uh, had started a company called AppSera, which was building an alternative um, using the Cloud Foundry technologies under the covers. So, you know, this immediately sparked this huge movement around PaaS. Um, you actually saw the OpenStack community start thinking about building PaaS capabilities. So, you know, the, the, the industry around 2011, 2012, 2013 very much had PaaS fever, right? There was a lot of other PaaSs that were out there. Um, uh, dot cloud, which eventually folded up, but became the originator of the feature for Docker, was another PaaS company. There was a whole lot of them that were out there at the time. So, um, you know, this was this was what was going on. And again, it it really kind of got people thinking above the infrastructure, right? Um, you know, there was a set of people that were looking at infrastructure like OpenStack, but they were also looking at AWS and Rackspace and other types of things and and on premises. But this was really sort of elevating the conversation. So it was about um, application developers. It was about you know building new types of applications. So just to put it in perspective, 2011 VMware launches this. 2012-ish timeframe, um, Pivotal gets launched. Uh, so VMware spins out. VMware and EMC spin out the Pivotal Corporation. Paul Moritz leaves to go run the Pivotal Corporation, and Pivotal sort of becomes the dominant company around Cloud Foundry because obviously um, you know they took the code with them. Now, to put this in perspective, and this is going to sound a little unusual, you know, if we think back to the OpenStack story that we had, you know, OpenStack sort of got started, and within a year or two, um, you know, people were like, okay, I don't know that I trust Rackspace or NASA, so we need a foundation. We need, you know, kind of a, a, an open govern place, uh, open governance around what's going on, because you're going to do this as open source. It took four years to get from Cloud Foundry being launched to almost four years, a little under four years, between 
Cloud Foundry being launched as VMware, and even though it was open source, to the Cloud Foundry Foundation launching in 2015. So imagine, you know, all of the sort of angst and buildup that went on, um, you know, and trying to figure out how do we make this into a community because it's an open source project, but is it going to be a mostly single vendor dominated thing or was there going to be open, open governance? So that was an interesting thing to sort of watch. You know, at the time, there weren't nearly as many foundations. The foundations weren't nearly as well-defined as we have things like CNCF today, but that was sort of an interesting thing to watch in terms of, you know, how was Pivotal, who at the time then took over the code from VMware, going to get the community to buy into this, but also, you know, sort of remain neutral or was their goal to remain neutral, which obviously it wasn't because they built their whole business around the technology, but there were some interesting dynamics that went on there. But once the foundation came along, um, you know, you had a lot of very big names, uh, big vendor names put their put their weight and their reputations behind it. So you had companies like IBM, SAP, Intel, Cisco, EMC, and VMware. Um, a number of end users got on board behind this. So you had people like JPMC and Allstate and uh, other companies who were you know kind of behind this. So it had a lot of momentum. It had a lot of of buzz as you know this is going to be the way that the passes are going to work. Now. If we think about the technology itself, um, Pivotal did, uh, well, I, I'm, I'm going to say this and I don't mean to do it on purpose. Sometimes I'll say Pivotal, I mean Cloud Foundry. I'm going to talk about Cloud Foundry as the independent thing, but oftentimes I'll mention Pivotal because they were sort of the dominant company in this community. Um, Cloud Foundry from a tar- technology architecture perspective, like I mentioned, had a number of valuable things, powerful things, right? It was designed to work across multiple clouds. So it had this concept of, um, were called stem cells, or this idea of uh, if you deploy it on top of VMware, you know, here's the underlying infrastructure technology. If you deploy it on top of AWS, here's the underlying infrastructure technology. And so it was designed from day one to to be consistent everywhere, but to understand the underlying cloud. So that was really kind of a powerful concept. Um, they used this idea of stem cells, and they used this idea of a technology called Bosch, which was going to help um, kind of automate that infrastructure and then automate keeping it up to date. So there were some interesting concepts in there. Um, it came with a lot of integrated technology. So as a PaaS, right, the idea was, let's make this as simple for developers to get their applications into production. And then a lot of the platform will just take care of things. So it had integrated logging, integrated tracing, integrated, you know, routing capabilities, integrated GUI, and, you know, quite a bit of things that, you know, lived, again, above infrastructure as service. Um, One of the design characteristics was, you know, it had data services lived off the platform. So the platform was primarily there for stateless applications, or, you know, what was called at the time 12-factor applications, still oftentimes called that. Um, but data services and sort of stateful applications lived off the platform. So, um, you know, in a typical environment, um, you know, we didn't have at the time, 2011, 2012, we didn't have this massive number of cloud services, you know, managed databases of service and managed AI and ML. So you would run the other services typically on a bunch of VMs somewhere off of the platform. So that created some interesting dichotomy, um, whether or not that was a good design pattern or not. Um, we'll get into that later in the future, but you sort of had to manage your stateless applications on Cloud Foundry and you manage your state full applications through a service broker, a Cloud Foundry service broker to those running somewhere else, right? On VMs locally or in the cloud or wherever they ran. It was a fairly heavy, it was a fairly intense platform because of all these services. So to stand up a Cloud Foundry 
often took 50 VMs to get into a highly available environment. And this was something that down the road became problematic for them because one of the goals was we want to be able to run a Cloud Foundry on a developer's laptop, uh, on-premises, in the cloud, and so forth. 50 VMs was a very large footprint to get started with. So that was something that over the years uh, was, was had to be addressed and wasn't always necessarily addressed, but other projects sort of learned from that. Um, so Cloud Foundry created all this technology. Um, you know, they created an experience around it. You often heard of CF push um, or CF you know, update and other types of things. So they tried to build in some capabilities that, you know, thought about inner loop and outer loop for developers. So there was a lot of thought process that went into that, um, you know, and, and whether or not it was always used or not, the concepts were there. And I think the concepts resonated very well with developers. Um, again, the idea that I just want to you know, write my code, I just want to push my code, I want to be able to easily update that. Um, that worked great for sort of inner, inner loop development, right? Things I can do, uh, in dev and test it wasn't necessarily something that developers would touch into production that would have to be baked into the CI system but you know all of that uh, that concepts the thinking behind it um, was sort of you know advanced at the time it was it was very very interesting and, and a lot of developers at least for new applications were drawn to it now the other thing from a technology perspective was um, you know if we put ourselves in 2011 2012 even 2013, Everybody that was in the PaaS space was creating their own, um, you know, sort of way of packaging an application. So, uh, you know, in the case of Cloud Foundry, um, an application became a droplet, right? Um, uh, OpenShift had a way of doing it. They called it gears and cartridges and other things had a way of doing it. But essentially, everybody in the industry building a PaaS had their own way of doing uh, application packaging. And they also had their own container or they had their own scheduling mechanism. Now, under the covers, they were all fundamentally using Linux containers, um, kind of the low-level C groups and things. Um, but they were all different. And so what happened, what sort of came along, and we'll get into this uh, maybe in a month or so when we talk about what happened with Docker, um, in parallel, you had uh, the company that had formerly been .cloud, which was Solomon Hike's company, had gone under, but they spun out Docker. And Docker basically said, hey, here's a standard way to package an application. Now, Cloud Foundry had something that was um, called Warden. That was their way of sort of um, can, you know, building the runtime and the packaging for it. And they had something called Diego. And the analogy for Diego was a container scheduler. But again, um, you know, it never evolved to become Kubernetes. So you have this platform that does sort of everything that you need from a developer perspective. It was kind of heavy. Um, and at the time, it was built on sort of homegrown, um, you know, not quote unquote standardized technologies. And they were kind of, once you reached 2013, 2014, 2015, by the time Docker and Kubernetes came out, and even Mesosphere and Docker Swarm and some other things, you were sort of now fighting this battle of, you know, do we want to have standardized ways of packaging our applications? Do we want to use more standardized schedulers? Um, you know, do we want to work with a community that's, you know, allows more participation? Or do we like this, what I used to call and what I wrote about back in 2015, sort of structured versus unstructured platforms. Cloud Foundry was very much an opinionated, structured platform. Everything you needed was within the platform. 
You didn't necessarily have to know the technologies under the covers, um, but you may uh, choose differently and choose more of an unstructured platform, something that was using Docker and Kubernetes was going to give you a little more flexibility in terms of the way you could put some things together. You'd have to do more work. Um, but again, you know, that's eventually how you know, Cloud Foundry kind of evolved. It, it evolved in parallel to this other market that was, you know, kind of evolving around Docker and Kubernetes and Mesos and Swarm and so forth. So, um, you know, Cloud Foundry had about 2011 to 2015 or 16, where they had a really good run. Um, the companies that were working on this uh, were, you know, gaining customer traction, they were gaining success but they were having to teach people how to do 12-factor applications, and they were trying to figure out how to make that work. Now, um, a couple of other things that were sort of interesting at the time, um, Sam Ramji was the original uh, sort of CEO or executive director of the Cloud Foundry Foundation. Sam brought a ton of sort of respectability from being somebody who had open source credentials. So, you know, when the foundation first got started, the fact that Sam took over leadership really demonstrated to the market that... Uh, you know, they were going to be committed to open source. Uh, unfortunately, Sam's tenure only lasted about 18 months, uh, 15 to 18 months. Um, you know, he eventually decided to leave. Part of the tension there, um, and I don't want to get into all the details, but, um, you know, was, you know, how do we expand out what it was? And there was some tension between the Cloud Foundry Foundation and, and Pivotal, what Pivotal wanted to push. At the time, Kubernetes was a big push. There was questions about, will Cloud Foundry replace their core technologies with Docker and Kubernetes? That never really happened until much, much later. Abby Kearns eventually took over. Abby did an excellent job from November of 2016 to April of 2020. Um, Abby really, you know, elevated the marketing, the awareness, the visibility of the Cloud Foundry Foundation. She really made an effort to focus on customer stories, customer success. So, you know, while the Cloud Foundry technology was somewhat uh, waning in the market, uh, Abby did a really, really good job, commendable job, um, along with Chip Childers as the CTO of, you know, kind of elevating the customer side of, of that community. And that was something that, you know, eventually got replicated in other communities, but she really was kind of a pioneer in terms of, you know, bringing customers into open source communities, making their success visible and, um, you know, trying to, trying to drive awareness and, and adoption and so forth. So um, eventually, uh, you know, the largest provider of Cloud Foundry in the space, uh, Pivotal, um, went IPO in 2018. Most of the major corporations who had originally been on board with the Cloud Foundry Foundation by late 2016, 2017 had moved on to Kubernetes. Uh, Pivotal eventually IPO'd um, at $15. Uh, their high got up to $30 within a couple of months, uh, but they never got uh, any higher than that. And they eventually were sold for 8 to $9 a share to VMware. So, you know, the run of, of Cloud Foundry went from, you know, about 2011 to about 2018, 19 or so. Um, again, a lot of lessons learned. It really, it elevated the past space. Um, it also went through the, you know, Paz is dead days and, and everybody in the Paz space sort of went through that. Um, it went through the transition from structured platforms uh, like a Cloud Foundry to sort of unstructured platforms. So things more that were driven based on Docker and Kubernetes and others. So a lot went on there. Um, a lot of interesting times. Obviously, we saw the rise of the public clouds from, you know, sort of about 2013 on. We saw that more and more happen. Um, so some lessons we learned, I'm going to kind of, you know, we've gone through the history of all this. I want to kind of look through some lessons we've learned. You know, I think as we look at the Cloud Foundry technology, the community, the space around it, a couple of things that I take away from it. Um, you know, 
we had various debates about should communities be, you know, single vendor led sort of dominated. That's difficult. Um, you know, especially if, if, if your goal is we want to be the dominant expert in this space, we've seen that succeed in some places. We've seen that with Elastic and Mongo and, uh, you know, in Kafka with, um, uh, uh, the company escapes me, but you know we've seen that in certain things, Redis and and others, um, you know Databricks, and um, but if you're trying to, those companies didn't necessarily try and create a foundation about what they were doing, right? They weren't trying to build community around it. Um, that's where it struggled, right? It tried to create this sort of more open, um, you know, inclusive sort of community, but you still had sort of one vendor sort of dominating it. So that those dynamics became fairly difficult, um, you know. The other thing that we learned through this is at any time you you have a platform and then the underlying technologies of that platform or you know the the competitive ones change it is really really hard to change because you've built an architecture that may not necessarily be modular right like it was designed very much to be you know one great experience and so when docker and kubernetes came along while there were people pushing the cloud foundry foundation and, and the cloud foundry community to change that um, that never really grasp hold until literally maybe just a year or so ago and, and kind of unfortunately too late for cloud foundry to make a change so you know keep in mind it is it is very hard to change technology especially sort of you know throwing out the the engine while the airplane's flying so um you know it's hard it's hard to sort of take feedback from people that um you know maybe we should change especially if you know some companies are doing well you know from a from a technology perspective some positive things that you know cloud foundry really sort of set the tone for was they, well, this is an area they struggled with, but we've learned as a community around, they didn't make it simple enough to get environments, to get clusters, right? So, you know, I mentioned that Cloud Foundry was really big and heavy um, once you got it up and running. You know, we've seen the rise of managed Kubernetes services. So, you know, we've seen EKS, AKS, uh, GKE, uh, Cloud, uh, DigitalOcean's Kubernetes, OpenShift managed services in places. So, you know, we've seen that. We've seen cluster API uh, come along, trying to make it simpler to get uh, clusters in Kubernetes. We've seen laptop level, you know, platforms, things like Minikube and some other stuff. So, you know, it's really, really important to make it simple for your developers to be able to spin up an environment, run it anywhere they want to. Um, that was a lesson that Cloud Foundry didn't learn fast enough um, that subsequent communities have learned. The other thing was, um, you know, and this was a timing thing. Unfortunately, there wasn't a managed version of Cloud Foundry that was really in a great place, right? Um, IBM Cloud had some early versions. IBM Cloud didn't test necessarily, wasn't a great cloud environment. Bluemix wasn't a great cloud environment. Um, VMware tried to run it on VMware-based environments. It became very expensive. Um, they was when they were trying to be in the public cloud space. That didn't necessarily work out. And subsequently, we never really saw any of the public cloud providers adopt the technology. Um, so, you know, at least until sort of very, very late in the game, Azure has sort of a service. But, you know, you never saw them, you know, kind of adopt it. You never really saw them get involved with the foundation. So, again, that's one of these areas that nowadays, <clears throat> nowadays, excuse me, you really need to have a partnership with the public cloud. You need to be running it in the public cloud. You need to have it in a place where your customers want to be running. So, you know, in the clouds that they want to run in. They did do some really interesting things in terms of platform awareness, right? That idea, like I said, of of stem cells and Bosch were, you know, kind of revolutionary at the time, right? Understand the cloud environments I'm on. Don't be agnostic. Um, have the ability to to link into those system APIs to be able to auto update the systems to 
you know, repave them and repair them for security reasons was really um, kind of, you know, really interesting at the time. We've seen other communities begin to pick up that um, that capability. Bosch was sort of a difficult tool to use. Um, you know, they that wasn't something that the community necessarily gravitated to. They used other tools, Chef and Puppet and Terraform and other stuff. But the concept of the platform having awareness was really, really important. Um, I talked about, you know, the idea of building in sort of inner loops and outer loops for developers was, was really an important concept that Cloud Foundry, I think, got right. Um, we've seen that try and evolve over time. We've seen some things like build packs and S2I and other tools that help you, you know, build containers, not have to know about the, the actual containers and underlying infrastructure is really important. And like I said, last thing is, you know, the industry has been sort of mixed on, you know, the, the cloud foundry architecture approach of, you know, do we run stateful services on the platform, like a cloud foundry or Kubernetes or something, right? We've seen, Lots of companies, uh, you know, database companies and, um, you know, AI company, AI projects and so forth run natively on Kubernetes, take advantage of those scalability. We never really saw that in Cloud Foundry. It wasn't a design pattern. So, but I'm not to say that it was a bad idea, right? We see lots of managed cloud services now um, in the public cloud. Those continue to grow. And, you know, for a lot of customers, they feel more comfortable letting somebody else run them, right? So the real sort of lesson learned there is understand, are you trying to, you know, manage the full experience, both sort of your stateless and stateful applications together, one sort of operational model, or are you looking to do it off the platform and more and more off the platform, we see it, you know, taking advantage of letting the cloud run it for you. And then you just linking to it through service brokers and operators and other things. So it was kind of a lot uh, around Cloud Foundry. It was a very, you know, interesting community. It was a very interesting time. Uh, the whole PaaS space, you know, had ups and downs, um, you know, it competed with new technologies, but it really, you know, it kind of started to bring the whole idea of cloud native to the forefront, right? A new way of building applications. It became, you know, kind of the, you know, predecessor to what became the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. And, uh, you know, a lot of the people who, you know, maybe started in Cloud Foundry space have moved to Kubernetes and moved to, you know, other data services and so forth. So, you know, a lot of good experience was gained out of that space. So it's been interesting to watch. Um, you know, we're going to maybe do some of these look backs maybe once a month. We'll try and mostly do look forwards on the Sunday perspective. But I thought this was an interesting one. It was a topic that we covered a lot on the Cloudcast in those 2013, 14, and 15 days before, again, Docker and Kubernetes sort of uh, you know, stole their thunder and, and so forth. But, um, you know, hope you enjoy this. Uh, hope you enjoy the Sunday's perspectives. And again, we will talk to you uh, next week on the Wednesday show. Thank you for listening to the Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media.